0: Turn to Luke 18. When Abram emailed to pray or uh, emailed to ask me to preach, I uh, it really didn't take long to consider what to preach. I immediately thought of Luke 18. It's something. It's a text that's been helpful to me over the years of ministry. I had recently used it in a teaching to the youth group at our church on prayer. And then I've been thinking of what I've just prayed that in our calling as pastors, we have this calling to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. And how seriously we take half of that, maybe. If you're like me, preaching makes me nervous. I've done it for 15 years, and every Saturday night, every Sunday morning, I am nervous and I give a lot of time and attention to how I'm going to preach, to studying the text, to making sure I understand. In fact, one of the good things about preaching Luke 18 is you don't have to guess why he's saying what he's saying. He tells it to you right there. And so I don't have to do a lot of work on that this morning, but you know, you give a lot of attention to the preaching and not so much to the praying, do we? And so I was convicted of Here here! I am nervous to preach and yet praying is coming before God and I I can't tell you that I really ever get nervous to pray. And I don't think that's because I view God as so loving and kind and accepting. It's just I don't think much of it. I probably fear you or fear those in my church way more than I fear God. And so Luke 18 should be helpful. And then I was thinking, I was thinking of Joe, when this text came to mind, I was thinking of you all and the consistent difficulties that attend your marriages, your parenting, your pastoring. And that this text has been a source of pretty consistent help for me, and I hope it is for you. And so if you would, why don't you stand as we read uh, Luke 18. I'll pray and then we'll get into it. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and he did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You can be seated. So, this parable by the Holy Spirit comes on the heels of Christ teaching. I don't know where you're at on what Luke 17 is about, if it's AD 70 or the time preceding his second coming. I'm more in the latter, which maybe would make me uh, less trust. I don't know. I'm kind of tired of that debate right now. I don't know if you are. Uh, It doesn't matter. The point is, it's going to get pretty bad. In fact, at the end of it, whatever Christ is referring to there, it's likened to vultures feasting on dead carcasses. And so... We live in northern Wisconsin. After winter, one of the disgusting realities after the snow goes away is a lot of dead deer carcasses and crows and bald eagles feasting on them. And so the picture Christ's giving is that's not deer, it's human flesh that the birds are eating. It's going to be awful. And as God consistently does for His people, and I think particularly for us as pastors, He gives us help in our suffering. And so you all are pastors. You know the difficulties of the calling. And this parable particularly is intended to help you. And so I hope it does. So Matthew Henry notes that the parable has its key hanging at the door. He tells us exactly why he's telling it. That we might at all times pray as we ought and not lose heart. And Christ is so helpful to us here because you know that you are tempted to frequently uh, not admit the reason for your fault. And the fault here that we don't pray. And there's lots of reasons you could come up with it and Christ drills down on the main one. Lack of faith. You don't trust God. You've lost heart. You've given up hope. And so, uh, it's odd in a parable for Christ to tell us why he's telling it. In fact, in some parables, he obscures his meaning enough to keep it from those that are hard of heart, where here he just tells it very plainly. And you have to ask yourself, why does he do so? Well, I think when it comes to our suffering, particularly in the pastorate, and the first means of grace in the suffering we'll have as pastors, that being prayer, he, he wants to put the meaning on the low shelf. He, he wants you to have easy access to understanding it in order for it to be as helpful as possible. And then I was thinking, you know, one of the enjoyments of being a pastor is searching out hard passages. Uh, maybe the temptation if you were going to preach to other pastors, is to pick a passage that might allow you to show off a little bit your exegetical skills. And we might despise a passage like this where there isn't much work to do to understand the meaning. That this would be easier for somebody who's about to be ordained or something like that. But those of you who have done it for a while, we wouldn't do something like that. Well, it's very helpful to you because in your pastorate, in your preaching, you're going to suffer. And every time you step up to the pulpit or any time you're in counsel with somebody, the reality that you're going to pay a price for that is real. It's right there. It's often before I come to preach or before I know there's going to be a hard counseling session that I have the thought that I hate this. You ever think that? Never? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, I do. (laughs) And I actually said that to my church a few years ago. I don't remember what I was preaching on or what was going on, but I stepped into the pulpit and I said, I just want you to know that I, I hate doing this. And I had to nuance it because I didn't want them to think that I hated them or that I despised the calling. But the weight of it, uh, the, the price that you'll pay for saying God's truth. and uh, This is something that I was completely unprepared for when I went into the pastorate. I graduated from Gordon-Conwell. I had a, my first call was in the Evangelical Free Church. I was there for seven years, and it was terrible. And I was completely unprepared for it. I went in thinking that I know God's Word, uh, the people will listen to me, and it will all be well. That was my understanding of pastoral ministry and in my first couple of Sundays I gave in a an illustration of a penguin and I think I said in the Arctic and I guess penguins aren't in the Arctic I didn't know that (laughs) they're in the Antarctic and afterwards I got a blistering letter from a guy in the church that if I can't get that right he can't trust me in anything else I'll say I was 29 and (laughs) it's like all, all of the sudden the lives of the prophets and the apostles in Christ became very real to me. (laughs) And so you're going to suffer. And the first help God gives you in your suffering is prayer. And I I think we know this, and I think we do that. Uh, And so let's be reminded of it. So in, in this parable, we meet two characters. We first meet this judge. Uh, it it says that he's an unrighteous judge. Verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said in his lack of righteousness is do that. He doesn't fear God at all, nor does he fear man. And sometimes you might think that not fearing man is a good quality. Here it isn't. He, he has no care for other people. He has no love of the people that he's supposed to be giving justice for. He's maybe a, a sorrow appointed judge or something like that, right? Uh, he's not a good man. And then you have this nameless widow. And it's very helpful that we don't have any information about her because you all have widows that you know, and it's very easy to immediately, in your mind's eye, see this woman. She's frail. In my church, we have widows, and they have family, but sometimes their families are very unhelpful. And so they're left very vulnerable. And that's this woman. And she's really only got one thing going for her. And this is often true of widows, isn't it? They can be very persistent. We see that in Acts six. You have the Hellenistic widows being neglected in the distribution, and they ain't gonna have it, right? And so this is very true. Well, she's she's suffering some injustice. She has no hope of remedy except for this unjust, unrighteous judge of low character, and the tenaciousness, her determination to get justice is given, and it's only for one reason. She just kept coming. Day after day, she wore Him out. And then, of course, the lesson is how much more God who has elected us in love in Christ who didn't withhold His only Son who has given us innumerable, great and precious promises. How much more God won't give justice to His elect who cried to Him day and night? He will not delay long over them. And yet, the challenge, the rebuke is when Christ comes, will He find faith on earth? So this parable is meant to strengthen our faith. As evidenced by consistency in prayer, and so it's meant to help you. And Christ is always, the Bible is always doing two things: it's poking us in our sin and strengthening our faith. And the way that this text humbles you is by uh, comparing you with a with a widow. And. Not in a flattering way. So when you were a boy with other boys, the best taunt for another boy was always you throw like a girl, right? Uh, it's helpful to young men to be poked like that. Now, I'm not comparing Christ to a taunting 12-year-old boy, but it, He not only compares us in our unbelief to this vulnerable widow, but He compares you unfavorably to her you don't have the one thing she has. And that that rings true with me. I don't. We have a picture directory at our church. Our secretary takes pictures of our members and puts them together in a directory. And it's very outdated, but it's very useful uh, to me in one thing, it's praying for their people. And so I've gotten in the habit or tried to be in the habit of just praying for two pages a day uh, for our saints and I have their pictures and it's very helpful. And I can't tell you how inconsistent I am at that very simple thing. That There are days when I get up in the morning or go to the office and have this picture directory. It takes a few minutes and I am so reluctant and don't want to do it at all. And often I don't. Of course, whenever anybody criticizes anything about us, You think you think in times when you aren't being criticized that maybe you've finally grown in faith enough to handle criticism. I've had that thought repeatedly when I'm not being criticized that maybe God's doing a work in me and I'm and then I get criticized and I'm right back to doubt and despair and frustration and anger and God don't you love me and God why are you letting this happen? And so, you and I lack what this wa- woman has. Now, of course, you are, I am, prone to lose heart. And that is named in verse 8 as unbelief. So we don't trust God. We don't trust God particularly in our calling in the pastorate. So this is what Christ says. Here, the, what the unricious... Judge, judge said, "Shall not God bring about justice for His elect?" Now, this woman, this widow, has regard for the judge in one way, even though he's unjust. Even though she knows he has no fear of God. Even though she knows that she does, he couldn't give a rip for her because she has no ability. To put any pressure on him or to give him anything, maybe a bribe, to get him to do anything. Except that she believes that he is so selfish that, that if she can bother him enough, he'll probably give her justice. And so in one sense, she has a regard for that part of his character. And here we have God named as our electing God. Our sovereign God who has chosen us before the creation of the world in Christ set His eternal love on us and our lack of prayer stemming from our unbelief shows us that in these times of difficulty, she may have higher regard for the unjust judge than we do for the Father. We won't pray. We stop asking. We give up. We're disheartened. We're overwhelmed by unbelief. We no longer see God as He is. We lose sight. We lose hope that God is our Father who has purchased us by the blood of His Son. Now that isn't to say that the difficulties we go through are not heart-wrenching. They absolutely are. There's a reason that we love to be together with each other. Because we've all been through it. We've all endured it. We've all had the betrayals. We've all heard the whispers. We've all gotten the emails. We've all had that unpleasant experience of hearing that so-and-so left without ever hearing a word from the so-and-so who left. And hearing through third, fourth, fifth hand, why they've left and how awful that is. And so we understand the brokenheartedness of this. We understand coming home to a wife who has battled the kids all day and doesn't have much sympathy for the battle you fought that day. And so... Calling us in our unbelief is not, isn't to disregard the actual suffering and pain. It's, it's awful. There's a reason that pastors often don't last long. Because it's very painful. But underneath that, the main difficulty is just simply our unbelief. We can ex, we, we, if we, we read here that we lose heart, like, you you could excuse that. You could pardon that, can't you, if you're talking with another brother? You could, you can understand why. This this is when we come to scripture that we have to be trained not only by its doctrine, but about how it goes about helping the saints when they're in trouble. Jesus is very tender in this parable, isn't he? There is a ton of tender. I think one of the most attractive things to me is, how this little editorial comment in verse 1, it's very attractive to me. He, to show them that they at all times ought to pray and not lose heart, that, that's very attractive and appealing to me. That, that strikes me as loving. To remind me of God's electing love. But you'll notice, so, so Christ is in one way motherly here, if you will. You've scraped your knee and He cares about that. But He does much more Son, get up. You know, dry your eyes and, and get up. Like, get back to praying. Son, at, at the root of your difficulty here, what's being revealed to you and your lack of willingness to pray or to blame God is unbelief. So we must remember, brothers, as we counsel each other or as we go back to preaching that we do have to learn to sympathize with people's weaknesses and pain. We do have to be tender and caring and gentle and patient. But we also have to deal with the sin that's being revealed in it. So Christ will not let us off the hook in our suffering as pastors. This parable is aimed at us in this way. We're weak. We're frail. Our pride is often wounded in the criticism and difficulties that come about. In fact, maybe the place that you're most tempted to unbelief is in this little word here in verse eight. Quickly. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. I, If I'm honest with myself, I don't believe that at all. I can't say that whenever I've been in difficulty or suffering or pain that I've ever thought that God was quick about it. Ever. I really can't think of a time where when I was in the middle of it that I thought, yeah, this is about right. God is handling this speedily. Just a few years ago, we had a number of people who are all connected at our church to a Christian camp who all got mad at the same time and were threatening to leave. It was only a two or three month ordeal. And it wasn't a big percentage of our church. And man, the, the turmoil that caused me, the, the fear, the questioning of God's goodness, the last thing I thought is that he was handling it speedily, quickly. And so this parable is revealing to us in this our faithlessness. It reveals it to us in that I, like you, I would assume, you will give yourself all kinds of patience and sparing yourself regarding your disbelief in God's care and answer, right? If you were to pastor yourself in your unbelief, you would be incredibly patient with yourself. And excuse it. There's reasons for it. This has happened. That has happened. And don't forget about what happened before that. And just give yourself some time. And yet, in regards to God's delay, we spare Him not at all. We will not allow any time between the beginning of the conflict and the pain it's causing and the resolution of it. We're very demanding. We're accusatory. We will not spare God His... Delay, We will not yield to His sovereign goodness in prolonging our difficulty at all. But we will towards ourselves. And so isn't that monstrous? Isn't that awful of us? And this is the help Christ is providing us in our suffering in this passage. This is the good work of suffering, isn't it? It is only in those times that you really see your need for Christ because you really begin to see your sin. You can become convinced that you are making great progress in the faith when you are not suffering. And so begin to be subtly proud and more self-reliant. And then when any trouble comes, the canoe is very quickly upset and you are flailing and floundering. And, and that's good. Because he learned to pray again. And yet, throughout all of Scripture, God has over and over and over and over again answered the bell, answered the call for His people. Just think right at the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, how quickly didn't He bring them a promise of redemption and clothe their nakedness? David as he fled for Saul and cried out, yeah, it was a long ordeal, but look at where God brought him. Even our Savior in his suffering. He did raise him from the dead. So we have every reassurance of this. And so, be reassured, brothers. God is your electing God. God has sovereignly set His covenant love on you in Christ. All of the promises of His covenant of grace are yours. And that is particularly so in your suffering and in your pain. And He requires one main thing of us in our suffering. That we trust Him enough to call on Him to pray. The Puritans, when they're talking about the means of grace, almost always list one first. In fact, they frequently refer to it as the first means of grace. And it isn't preaching. It isn't the sacraments. It's prayer. And I wonder if we asked you to list the means of grace. I doubt any of us would list prayer first, and it may not even get on the list. And this is what God has given us. So let me close in just encouraging us to pray in two ways. At one of the pastor's conferences a few years ago, I think this was pre-COVID, it was on worship. And Pastor Jody was preaching in something like worship as it is in heaven. And he, in looking at the passages in Scripture about singing, particularly congregational, he said that there was one consistent trait mentioned that seemed to define godliness in singing. You remember that, Jody? Remember what it was? Okay, well, he said it was volume. Sing loud. Shout. And so I was thinking of that sermon came to mind. I was thinking of it in prayer. What is the consistent metric in Scripture for godliness in prayer? What is it? If you just let your mind go to those passages that specifically are exhorting, teaching us to pray. What is the consistent quality of prayer that is mentioned. Yeah, frequency. That's it. Frequency. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Romans 12. 12. Be constant in prayer. So of course, we hopefully have pastoral prayers in our churches. We pray before the preaching. We pray before our meals, and we should not uh, disregard those. Those are good habits, good practices. We want to continue to do that. But here we might think of maybe going to others and asking them consistently to be praying for us. One of the ways that we may not consider this passage or or may not come to mind is you might immediately apply it to just your own personal private prayer. Which is obvious, but how much more are you helped by others coming, being with you and praying for you? When I was at my first pastorate in the middle of it, a group of a few of us local pastors went up to Piper's Pastor's Conference. And I was in despair. I mean, I, I had no hope anymore. I was really doubting whether I was called to be a pastor. I mean, the, the, um, the conflict was really hot. And uh, so, you know, I'm there with several hundred, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand pastors. I'm with a group of pastors that I was just totally alone. And, you know, what is the one thing a pastor will do in order to soothe his suffering? I went to the bookstore. i going to buy some books. And so I'm, you know... yeah. And I did. But at one of the tables, one of the vendors I think saw he, he saw in my countenance that I was not in a good place. And he just began to talk to me and asked me what was going on and pressed me. And I spent a long time telling him of the trouble. And then he just began to pray for me. And and the the peace, the reassurance it was so helpful to me and so as you are challenging your own steadfastness or constancy in prayer how about humbling yourself to going to others and bothering them even though they're busy as pastors or busy as elders or they got their own lives how about humbling yourself enough to consistently constantly be asking them for prayer and to help bear the burden of your marriage or of your parenting or of your finances or whatever. And so constancy in prayer is it. And then consider too, as I mentioned before in Acts 6, our calling as pastors. There's, there's two parts to it mainly in Acts 6. It's prayer and the ministry of the Word. And prayer is mentioned first. The apostles were distracted from that. The pastors of Christ's church were distracted from that and the serving of widows, a good ministry. But they were neglecting prayer first and then second, ministry of the Word. So how many of you would abandon constancy in ministry of the Word? You wouldn't dare to even consider that, would you? At all? That's the last thing we would ever do. In fact, we all know that if everything else is falling apart, the one thing that we need to give ourselves to is the preaching of the Word. That's right, isn't it? But we, we, again, we don't think of prayer as that. As, as that high, that important, that central to our calling, and yet it is. And so this is true both in private, in your own prayer closet. Should be true, of course, with our wives and our children, and, and true in our church. How many of you have ever written a sermon, or begin to write it without even asking God's help. You ever do that? I've done that. And so let's pray. Let's give ourselves to prayer. Let's give ourselves to praying for each other and calling on other to pray for us. Thomas Brooks says that praying souls are often the most assured souls. And so maybe our lack of reassurance in our trouble is due to a lack of faith in prayer. So that's the first help. Is The metric of godliness in prayer is constancy. Second, fill up your conscience with our Lord's definition of faith in this parable. So at the end here, in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? And the faith that he laments that won't be found is due to a lack of calling on him in prayer. And so load up your conscience with that truth that a foremost evidence in our lives of faith before the face of God is that they at all times ought to pray and not lose heart. And so, what drives you in your pastoring? What, what motivates you? Or what are you thinking is missing? There is this kind of Gnostic thought that if I miss out on that podcast... I'll miss out on the thing I need to be a better pastor or to deal with this issue or if I haven't read that thing or I miss that nugget. Of course, that might be true, but it's probably just the lack of faith seen in the lack of prayer. Just consider Christ's life. In the Gospels, One of the remarkable realities of Christ is how willing He is to make Himself available to people. It's really something. He is consistently in public, attentive, listening, giving. Even after hours of it, He's still doing it. And and so you should perk up when there's a few times when He doesn't. When he withdrew from people. And it, I didn't take time to like read all the gospels and see if this is true. I think there's only two main reasons that he ever withdrew from his attentiveness and care and passing of people. One was when they wanted to make him king. And the other was just for prayer in Mark 135 and early in the morning while it was still dark he rose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there and then Luke or then Mark notes that he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray and that, that's because he was full of faith in his heavenly father wasn't he and what a good application when you wake up in the morning what's what do you do first Is it to thank God for another day or ask His care and help for the day or is it to jump on Twitter or check your email? I check my email almost right away. Or I used to be in the habit of every couple of months getting away for a day just to pray and read and commune with God. I haven't done that in years. Maybe that's an application for you. Maybe it's that you once used to pray with your wife consistently and you're no longer doing it because there's lots of kids and lots of stuff to do. And at night, you know, because if you go to your wife and ask her to pray, it's usually going to open up a new conversation before you get to praying and you, geez, (laughs) I'm just going to go to bed. Or she'll have to clear the relational clutter. And you know the things on that list. and (laughs) I'll go pray by myself. Uh. And so, can we be humble? Can we be constant in prayer? And of course, the Psalms are so much help here, aren't they? Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer.